But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream from the book of the prophet Amos. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the book of the prophet Amos may be retitled or perhaps with a subheading riffing off of Paul Harvey's famous radio broadcast speech made even more famous by becoming a part of a Super Bowl commercial, So God Sent a Farmer. So God Sent a Farmer. Amos is from the town of Tekoa. Town is putting it nicely. He's from nowhere special. He's not born of any celebrity or royal lineage. This is not a very famous Amos that we are dealing with here. He is from the edge of the wilderness. Can anything good come out of Tekoa? It's a hick town. And he's from the land of Judah. And he is met on his farmland and he is told to go and prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel, which is already split apart from the kingdom of Judah. And he does not want to go. And so he passes the first necessary test to become a prophet. The prophetic calling is always thrust upon people in the Scriptures. Nobody goes looking for it. You can't qualify for it. No education allows you to say, yes, that's what I'll do. I'll go be a prophet now. He is a reluctant prophet, and so he is a true prophet. He passes the first test. The second test of a true prophet is this. Who do you put on the hot seat, and who do you let off the hook? And here we can distinguish between the prophet and the propagandist. For the propagandist will always put in the hot seat the people that you or I want to be in the hot seat, and they will always let off the hook, you and me and whoever we think should be let off the hook. They will always make it harder for the people, the propagandist, the harder for the people to live up to God's calling who we think aren't doing that, and they'll always make it easier for us simply because of where we are born or what we look like. And so... Amos actually starts off sounding like a propagandist. If you start in chapter 1, he says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And he says this, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Oh, that's good. I like that. We don't like those Damascus people. And Amos says that God doesn't like them either. I really like what he's saying. Let's see what else he has to say. For three transgressions of Gaza. Oh, yes. Yes. I love it. Yes. Take Gaza to task, God. We love what you're saying. Just keep it coming. Oh, Tyre? Oh, those Tyre. Oh, Edom. Yes. 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 You're right. Edom is the problem. That's right. Oh, for three transgressions of the Ammonites. And for Moab, this is good stuff. And the Israelites are on the edge of their seat. You can almost imagine them saying, hey, hey, hey. Change the channel. Oh, no, no, no. Get on that radio broadcast. This guy is bringing it out. He is preaching God's Word. We can almost hear it today. Hey, do you know all the stuff going on in Russia? It's bad. Do you know what's happening in China? Or have you heard about what's going on in Iran or North Korea or any of those deemed to be enemies of democracy and liberty? And people are excited. And they don't even know how good this is going to get. Oh boy. Thus says the Lord God, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. This guy's from Judah. 
And he says the Lord is speaking out against Judah. Those, that so-called kingdom to the south with the so-called Davidic city that likes to lord it over us. God speaking out against them. Yes! It's the Democrats. That's the problem. Or if you prefer, it's those Republicans. You can't trust them. And the Israelites are foaming at the mouth. This is good stuff. We're with you, God. We're on your side. You give it to them. Then the knife turns. Chapter 2, verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and they, they turn aside from the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in on the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. See, he's lured them in. He's gotten them on his side. He's earned their hearing and now, now he speaks the words of God's judgment against them. He passes the second test. There's no propagandist. He's sent to a people to say words he'd rather not say to a people who would rather not listen. God sent a farmer to this land rife with evil, overcome with wickedness. And this is why we see in chapter 5, as the reading began, he warns about being too anxious, too antsy, too excited about the day of the Lord. He said, yes, God's going to come. And judgment is going to be brought down. But you're not off the hook, Israel. So you shouldn't get too excited about it. Because it's going to be just as bad for you as it is for us. The judgment has come and the judgment is simply this. We do not love God. We do not love God. We don't want Him in our business, in our lives. Oh, we'll throw through a few parties for Him, sure. Yeah, we'll sing some songs. I'll even cut a check now or then. Sure, that's fine. But not out of love. To keep him off my back. We do the same thing with justice. As if justice is something that we created. As if it's something that we understand. As if it's something we designed. Something we own. And so we miss Amos's words entirely. These words that are quoted for good reason often. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness as an ever-flowing stream. But notice where that justice is coming from. It's rolling down. It's not bubbling up. It's not springing up. You can't be reached by digging down deep. No, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And so if we cut ourselves off from God, we cut ourselves off from justice. And it never flows alone. Notice that. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness as an ever. We lie to ourselves if we think justice is something we can go out and achieve on our own. Doesn't mean we can't do anything good. Doesn't mean that some laws are better than others or certain policies aren't, are better than others. It simply means that justice, justice is impossible to attain without attaining to the life of God. And so it seems that the Israelites, what they've actually done is not tried to achieve or attain justice. All the work they've been doing is actually this effort to impede that justice rolling down.
coming into their lives. See, they've, they've blocked the stream. They've choked the river. They've dammed the waters, and so they've dammed themselves. And so God sent a farmer because farmers know what water is. It's life. It's life. And just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites have sought to cut themselves off from that life by covering themselves. And in so doing, they've exchanged the promise of life for the surety of death because they don't desire God. They don't want God. They don't love God. So they say, what's the smallest tax I can pay to get him off my back? Does he need some songs? Does he need some parties? Does he need a check now and then? Fine. They're haggling with the judge over the alimony price. And what God is saying, He's saying, look, Israel, I want your love. I do. I really want it. But you, you need to love me if you're going to live. In fact, you can't live apart from loving me. And I need you to go all in. And they're haggling. And they're counting the cost. They're like the foolish virgins. Those five virgins who are unwilling to go all in. They're hedging their bets. They're hedging their bets. Well, sure, if the bridegroom comes, I mean, that might be nice. That might sound good. Go to a wedding, I don't know, maybe. But I don't want to spend too much money. No, I'm, I'm not going to spend all my money now. I want to see how things play out. I want to be sure. Because they don't love the bridegroom. They don't love him. And they're rolling their eyes and they're complaining amongst themselves. You know, this wedding, this wedding's really getting out of hand. Such a big fuss. You know, it's too far away. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to make it. It's a little far Oh, the bridesmaid dress. That, was she, is she serious? How much that costs? Oh, the bachelor party. You know, that's the weekend the game is on. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I've, I've certainly said things like this about weddings. Maybe some of you have as well. And I don't mean to sound too cruel, but it's a good barometer of how much we love the people getting married. Because love covers a multitude of dollars and cents. See, people who love, they don't crunch the numbers. They don't count the cost. They go all in. And so when they show up at the door, the bridegroom doesn't know who they are because the bridegroom only invited his closest friends. And if you didn't make it to the ceremony, you don't belong at the reception. We see something similar in the book of Thessalonians with Paul those who love Jesus, who are waiting for Him, who are looking for Him to come, as soon as they see Him, they're going to be called out of whatever. They don't care what they're doing. Nothing could be more important than seeing Jesus and being with Him. And so they're called up into the air. And what Paul is referencing is when an emperor would come to a city, you would go out to greet the emperor. You would go out, you would go out to see the one who this city belonged to out of love and respect. And so they literally have nothing to stand on. They're called up into the air. They've got nothing but Jesus. But they know that to behold Him is to be held by Him. And so they want to go. They've, they've not crunched the numbers. They've not counted the cost. They've gone all in. 
And of course, they don't stay there. I hope you know that. That's not the hope of the Christian faith, some sort of cloudy, mushy, smushy afterlife. No, the emperor always goes back into the city just like Jesus is going to roll down back into this earth. You know, the definition of, of heaven really, it's hard to define, but really can be summed up as heaven is wherever God is. You get that? That's why Jesus is always saying the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. What he's saying is I'm here. Here I am. And so the foolish virgins and and those of us who think, well, we'll just spend however much money we can. What's the minimum amount? What we think is we want a spot in heaven. That'd be nice. But it's ridiculous. It's nonsense. Because you don't want to be in heaven if you don't love God because being in heaven is being with God. It's like wanting to live in a palace without living with the king. It's like wanting justice without wanting the righteous judge. It makes no sense. You know, justice, and Father Lee's taught well about this, it's, it's treating people as they ought to be treated. I would say even places and things. As they deserve to be treated. And the judgment is this, we don't love God. And we ought to. And He deserves our love, which means we actually don't love life. Because we don't love the life that He gave us, the life that He preserves and protects, the life He sent His Son to die on the cross to redeem and restore. We don't love life, and so we don't love God. And that's the judgment. And it leads to death. In chapter 7, Amos is approached by one of the priests of Bethel in Israel. You got to think this is probably one of the guys who liked the first bit of his speech and then sort of decided, you know what, I don't want to hear what this guy has to say. So he comes, Amaziah the priest comes to Amos and says, Oh, seer, go away to the land of Judah, flee and eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy in Bethel, for this is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. But Amos answered Amaziah and said, I'm no prophet. I'm not a prophet's son. I was a herdsman. I was a dresser of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. See, God sent a farmer. Why? God sent a shepherd. God sent a dresser of tree, re, trees. Really a, a pruner of trees. Do you know what the pruner does? The pruner pulls back and cuts down everything that cuts people off from life. That's what the pruner does. The pruner knows not only where to cut, but when and how and why. That's what the pruner does. And so God has sent a farmer. God has sent a pruner. And He sent them to prune Him to prune His people Israel. To cut off everything that cuts them off from life. And if you just see what the pruner's doing, if you just walk in, you might think, oh my goodness, that person is destroying that tree. That person hates that tree. That person's ripping limbs off and cutting and destroying. But only if we lack the eyes to see would we know that because the pruner knows, the farmer knows, I am saving this tree's life. I am ensuring its flourishing and its fruitfulness for years to come. Last year I received the second most difficult phone call of my life right around this time of year. The first came the November prior, so we in the Autry household are 
becoming a little wary of November's. Last year, I received the phone call that my father-in-law was going to have to have drastic surgery. He was going to have to have his leg amputated because there was a cancer inside that leg. And it was embroiled in his nerves and it was impossible to remove. It wasn't going to come out. And it'd be possible if you didn't know what was going on, if you didn't have eyes to see, to see the result of the surgeon's work and assume that man, someone meant this man great harm. Someone wanted to destroy him. But only if you miss it. Only if you don't understand that doctor saved my father-in-law's life. He was dying. He was going to die. In fact, death was already reigning in his body and he wasn't the man he'd been. And after that surgery, he was more alive than he'd been in over a year. Because God sent a doctor. Thanks be to the Lord. That's what judgment is, friends. It's not God raining down wrath for no reason. It's the good physician. It's the good shepherd. It's the pruner of trees. It's the holy farmer who says, you're going to die. I don't want you to die. And if I've got to cut something off so that you will live, I will do it. And we see that God Himself not only sends a farmer, God is a farmer. And chapter 9 of Amos ends this way. He says, I, meaning God, I, the Lord, will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and they shall inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in the land. And they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And that's the hope of Thessalonians. God is going to plant us in the land. And God's going to be with us in the land. And everything that seems ruined and impossible to restore is going to be redeemed. God sent a farmer. And God sent Jesus. And so if you have been baptized in the font from which justice rolls down like waters, then prepare your heart for the cup where righteousness flows like an ever-flowing stream. And if you haven't, perhaps now is the time to begin asking yourself why. Do I love God? Do I want to love God? Do I want to go all in? Do I want to risk it all? Or am I going to count the cost and crunch the numbers and see the smallest amount that I can give? Friends, God sent a farmer to redeem and restore us and to cut us off from that which leads to death and to flow into our hearts everlasting life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.